Hello, I'm Anthony Scaramucci, and this is Open Book, where I talk with some of the brightest minds out there about everything surrounding the written word, from authors and historians to figures in entertainment, neuroscientists, political activists, and of course, Wall Street. Sorry, I can't resist. Before we get into today's episode, if you haven't already, please hit follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. We all love a review, even the bad ones. I want to hear the parts you're enjoying or how we can do better. You know, I can roll with the punches, so let me know. Anyways, let's get to it. My guest today, Christopher Ullman, has spent his career working with some of the most interesting and successful people out there. His new book, Four Billionaires and a Parking Attendant, is personal, funny, and ultimately a roadmap to becoming the best version of yourself. I have been privileged enough to know some of the people in this book, too, and I've learned a lot from them over the years. So it's great to see Chris has put all of these great stories and wisdom on paper. So joining us now on Open Book is Christopher Ullman. He's a communications expert, four-time whistling grand champion and author. I actually went online to check out some of that and finding your whistle, Chris. We'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, but he's the author of a soon-to-be best-selling book, Four Billionaires and a Parking Attendant, which is a phenomenal title. I don't know how you came up with that. Maybe you're smoking pot at the time, something, <laughs> but it's a phenomenal title. <laughs> And uh, it gravitated me to the book, and it's a great read. And uh, it turns out we have a lot of friends in common. Let's start there. Uh, I have a friend that worked for the SEC for 20 plus years. He hates crypto. I love crypto, which is basically where we started in high school together. Um, You talk about your dad and how he stopped once he felt he had achieved what he needed to but he never encouraged you to do the same. I, so I want to I want to go there. You know, we'll talk about John Stark in a second, but I, I thought what you said about your dad was fascinating. And uh, we all have this uh, relationship with our fathers, right? We want to impress our dad. I, I did. I wanted to make my dad proud. I'm sure you felt the same way. Um, but tell me about that philosophy that your dad shared with you. Well, Anthony, thank you so much for having me as a guest. Um, I'm really honored and excited to chat with you and uh, share some cool stories with your listeners. So I'm, I'm really uh, I'm humbled that you homed in on uh, the part about my father. So I grew up on Long Island, Massapequa Park. Uh, some of your listeners probably have heard of it. And so my father was a uh, you know Depression-era child. He, he passed away a couple of years ago at 86. And since he didn't have anything as a kid, by the time he got to his 40s or 50s, and he was a kind of solid middle manager in corporate America, he worked at Grumman Corporation on Long Island. He just he kind of stopped trying. Not kind of, he actually stopped trying. Like this notion of striving, he just stopped. And so it, it, and it was this kind of juxtaposition because he had stopped striving. But then he always said to me, do your best, do your best, do your best. And you know, part of the challenge was that I didn't really know what best meant. And that's kind of at the core of this book is that I went kind of from the minor leagues of Long Island where, you know, I didn't know presidents and chairmen and billionaires and the like. And then I moved to Washington after college and I like literally start working for billionaires and the chairman of federal agencies and chairman of committees and uh, on Capitol Hill and CEOs of major corporations. And I said, ah, oh, that's what being your best is like, and so really it set up this, 
kind of just interesting kind of challenge in my brain, you know, as a kid. Like, I'm like, how can my father just stop trying? Like, that's crazy. You know, so I, I kind of, I tried to do my best, but I didn't, didn't really know what my best was until I came yeah, here. It was interesting. I had a, my, I'm named after my uncle, Anthony. His uh, last name is DeFeo. Uh, they moved his class. He was supposed to graduate in June of 1943. They moved his class up to March of 1943 to get him over for the war. Uh, and so they, he got shipped out to the UK and he ended up on Normandy Beach, uh, survived the Normandy, wow. survived the Normandy invasion. But was wounded fairly seriously on the way into France, uh, maybe three weeks after the invasion. Uh, apropos to his generation, he healed in a hospital and went back to war, fought in the Battle of the Bulge, ended up at the Potsdam Conference after the war. But he came back and, to use your words, stopped trying. You know, I think the war flattened him and I think it traumatized him. And he was just happy to be alive. And I think he felt lots of guilt about living when some of his best friends for random reasons died and he became the produce manager at the local AMP you know and and there you go we're all driven by these different philosophies you know um you know, listen but he was a great man a great, and a real american hero and i'm sure so was your dad uh, for my listeners that don't know what Massapequa Park is, a fellow Long Islander, the nickname for Massapequa Park at Massapequa is Matza Pizza. Pizza. It's basically <laughs> Jews and Italians, okay? I mean, that's basically it, right? You're surrounded by Jews and Italians. Probably the best <laughs> food on Long Island is in that area for that reason, because let's just face it, Jews and Italians love food. Am I wrong, Chris? I mean, you just love the food. You are completely right. Best Jewish delis, the, the best Italian restaurants. No, no, no yeah. question. I love coming down to the South Shore. Uh, I'm a North Shore baby. I grew up in Port Washington uh, with your friend John Stark. But you said something that rang a bell in me, so I want to go to it. It's uh, billionaires, CEOs, chairmen. I'm from a blue collar family out here on Long Island. My dad was a crane operator, um, and so I had. Uh, I was very. I was quite impressionable. Obviously, when I met the the, the first president of the United States. The first president I met was probably Bill Clinton. I was in awe. I had the opportunity to be in the Oval Office as a young man at age 29. I was in awe. Of course, I got back there to work for Trump. It didn't last very long. I got fired after 11 days. But then I was like, holy shit, I'm actually working in the Oval Office as opposed to just walking through it. And so it's an amazing place, America. But tell me about not knowing billionaires and not knowing these high profile people and then meeting them, what did you learn? What did you learn about them versus normal? Is F. Scott yeah. Fitzgerald right? Are the rich different from you and I? They, in the end, we're all God's children and, and equal in his eyes. But the, the billionaires, the chairman, the CEOs that I have been honored to work with. And that's one of the cool things about this book is that this is not me just interviewing a bunch of random people. I actually worked hand in glove with all 15 people in the book. So they are different and they have like intense purpose. They, they know where they're going. They have this drive that just propels them through the, the tiredness and when they get sad or they feel like they're not getting there, they just drive. It's incredible. They're incredibly strategic, meaning they, they can map out a pathway and then, then they're tactically agile too. Like they're this capacity to figure out like what are the individual steps I need to get where I'm going? Uh, and they are a little crazy. There's no doubt about that. 
and they are thick skinned because people are going to tell them, no, 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 you can't do it over and over and over again. This happened to David Rubenstein constantly. Oh, don't do that, David. No one's ever done that before. And David said, I'm going to do it and just watch me. So these types of people, if there is an obstacle, they go through it, around it, under it, over it. It's really amazing. Now, one of the cool things about the book, it's yes, you have to be indefatigable and strategic and problem solving and all that. But they are also incredibly generous, really good at building bridges, which we're not seeing on Capitol Hill these days, unfortunately. And there are some great stories in the book about people building bridges with people who think differently from them. Because in the end, successful people want to get crap done. They don't want to just have an issue or pat themselves on the back. They actually want to accomplish. And so people said to me while I was writing the book, do you want to be a billionaire? And I said, I don't want to be a billionaire. I said, I want to be me. I want to be the best me possible. And by like kind of plucking out this lesson, this lesson, this lesson, like just materially changed the way I think and behave and has helped me become the best version of me. Now, I'm, I just turned 60. Hopefully, I've got 25 more good years in me. So I'm going to keep growing and hopefully continuing to become the best me possible. But these lessons have just really changed the way I think. And it's, it's cool to see them firsthand uh, and to learn from them. So it's, it's been, they are different, but I think everyday people are capable of becoming their best as well by learning from these superlative people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, listen, and I uh, I feel you, but not only that, I enjoyed reading the book because there was things about some of these people who I know personally that I did not know, uh, and some, some of the things related to their personal philosophy. So people who I have met, not necessarily know well, right? David Rubenstein, know very well, consider him a friend. Arthur Levitt, I've met, don't really know. Orlando Bravo has been on my podcast, and we've had several conversations, including one about FTX, uh, where Mr. Bravo was taught- mm-hmm by Sam Bankman-Fried's uh, parents, or particularly Joe Bankman, at Stanford. And so we mm-hmm. had that connection. Mr. Luke Gerstner, a graduate of Chaminade High School out here on Long Island, I know. Uh, mm-hmm. John Kasich, I've met through politics. And of course, then there's the legendary Bill Conway, another co-founder of Carlisle. Uh, you bring him up and you write about mentality and having the around-the-hoop mentality you know, I love that because everybody loves a rebound, don't they, Chris? And I've had to rebound a few times in my career. Uh, but what is it about having an around the hoop or hang around the hoop mentality? Well, Bill is a, a good friend. He's a, a one of the best investors in the world. And he's an incredibly generous man. And he had this philosophy he called hang around the hoop. And what it is, is it's a state of mind of openness, readiness, And it's also a kind of a physical stance. And that's why it's called hang around the hoop. So if someone is waiting for a rebound, their knees are bent, their hands are out, their eyes are perky and twitchy. They they are ready. They are ready for opportunity to come their way. But if you're kind of on the back foot and you're checking your phone and then there goes the rebound right past you. And Bill, Bill said, if you want to be successful, you have to have this hang around the hoop mentality. And this is a great anecdote in the book where Carlisle was bidding on a company against another big private equity firm, probably a multi-billion dollar deal. We lost out and the team thought they were going to win and they were really disappointed and they were kind of angry too. But Bill contacted the seller and said, we're disappointed. It was a tough process. We wish you well, and we look forward to working with you sometime in the future. 
total gentleman. They're really smart. Then the company that beat Carlisle, their financing fell through. So then the seller comes back to Carlisle and says, hey, are you interested in the company still? And Bill Conway says, yeah, I am. And guess what? We're going to have better terms now. But if Bill had been a total jerk about it and said, you know, you promised us that company, you know, we're friends, we earned it and was just a jerk about it, he would have burnt that bridge. And like, I think your listeners might be saying, you know, super wealthy, successful people don't do stupid things like this. And they do all the time. They really do. It's it's pretty shocking. I really love the story because it's uh, it's about uh, seeing through the immediate and taking a long term approach. And so it dovetails off of no- another lesson in your book, Enemy Today, Friend Tomorrow. You talk about Arthur Levitt in the book. He's lit up with this negative newspaper article in Business Week or this negative article. And rather than putting the uh, reporter in the doghouse, he lets them slide and they ultimately become friends. This, of course, happened with me and General Kelly. Uh, John Kelly, the uh, four star general, fires me in the White House. Uh, we were probably a little sore at each other in the beginning, but we've become very close personal friends and we do speaking engagements now around the world together. Uh, I had a wow. I, I had, yeah, no, I've done seven speaking engagements with John, wife Karen, and my uh, wife Deirdre. The four of us have had dinner together. Uh, we've actually become uh, good friends. And of course, we have some more in common than what separates us. And I actually brought it to Mitt Romney's event last year uh, where we were with Senator Manchin and Paul Ryan, et cetera. So that really resonated with me. It's hard for people to do, though, Chris. You know, someone lights you up uh, on Twitter. He lights you up in the New York Post. They write a nasty story about you. It's sometimes hard for people. They get grudgy, if you will. How do you prevent yourself, Chris, from getting grudgy? I love that word, grudgy. I've never heard it, but I'm going to start using it if you don't mind. I'm like George W. Bush. I'm making up words. (laughs) You know what I mean? I'm going to attribute it to you because it's a great word. So if your listeners are paying close attention the question you just asked is at the center, is at the core of whether or not these lessons are going to sink in or not. And it has to do with the ego. And it has to do with with taking the ego down a few levels because you have an objective. And I don't want ego or stupid things to get in the way of my objective. But people do it all the time. Now, I don't know if you saw William Cohan wrote in Puck recently that David Solomon, CEO of Goldman Sachs, won't talk to reporters if he they write bad stories about him. Now, I don't know if that's true, but if it's true, that's crazy because you're cutting off your nose to spite your face. So in the book, as, as you know, so Business Week writes this real, real tough piece on Levitt, accusing him of ethical impropriety, which is about as bad as you can get. And most people would have shut the reporter down, said, I don't talk to you anymore. My PR people won't even talk to you anymore. Instead, Arthur went on a charm offensive. He gave her scoops. He took her to breakfast. He took her to lunch. Four years later, when he retired from the SEC, Business Week did a cover story on Arthur with this awesome Moses-like photo with his hair back and and this great headline that said, The Investor's Advocate. And she co-wrote that article. And then two years after that, she co-wrote his memoir. And so rather than let the ego mess up his objectives, he stayed focused, totally focused. And it is hard, but people, and so much of managing your ego is about being present and saying to yourself, I'm getting angry. Okay. I understand that, but I have an objective and I understand that. 
Mm-hmm. And and you have to weigh the two against each other and try to push down the anger and then manage the ego so that you don't get off track. And in all my 37 years in you know politics and corporate America, I've seen people get off track so many times because the, the ego rises up and they are not good at managing it. But if you can, you know, and it's not a binary thing either. Uh, it's not a binary thing. What you have to do is incrementally understand what riles you up and then be very aware of your objectives and then almost like play them off of each other. If I get riled up right now, it will deter me from my goals. Rubenstein is particularly good at staying on track. Levitt, very good at staying on track, like super impressed. And it's had material impact on me. I used to get totally riled up. Now I am as chill as can be. And it's better for my blood pressure. I'm just a happier person. I'm just better at getting crap done. I think it's such a valuable lesson. You know, I just had this really negative article written about me in Bloomberg. I mean, the woman just blasted me. I was like, my God, maybe I dated her in high school or something like that. I was like trying to figure out how why. And then she wanted to come to my conference and my staff wanted to disinvite her. I said, that's absolutely ridiculous. Get her a front row seat. Now, I'm a big believer in the free press. I'm a public figure. Of course, she's allowed to write whatever the hell she wants to write. You know, let's leave it at that. But these, these are great, great lessons. American Giant makes great clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, and more right here in the U.S. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order with code STAPLE20. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Let's go to Salah. First of all, who is Salah? And uh, what are we learning from him about lessons of gratitude and happiness? Salah is a, is a friend. He is an Ethiopian immigrant. He became an American citizen. I went to his naturalization ceremony. And he's also the parking attendant in the title. Exactly. He's the parking attendant. You have four billionaires and a parking attendant. So what are we learning from Sal that's so valuable? Choosing to be happy. And it is a choice. It's like love. True love is not a feeling. It is a choice. You have to choose to love someone, which which means sacrifice and the ups and downs and all that. Same thing with choosing to be happy is that to choose to be happy means that you're not letting the little things just drag you down and again, distract you from your mission. So here I am. So Sala is a parking attendant at Carlisle. I drive my car in there every day for four years. Sala parks my car for me. And Mr. Chris, how are you? How's your family? How's your weekend? And and as most people know, in a parking garage, you know, under a building, it's either really cold in the winter or it's really hot in the summer. And it's always kind of dim or dark. And no matter what, he, Sala was always happy. And I'm just, I'm, a, I'm attracted to happy people because I believe life is short and you must maximize your gifts and appreciate them. And here, here's this guy, if he was making $35,000 a year, that was a lot. And he was happy. And then there's this juxtaposition. There are a lot of juxtapositions in this book where I'm comparing this and that. So here is the happy guy in the dark, cold, dim basement. 
and you go up 40 feet in the elevator and there's literally billionaire, 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 and all these centimillionaires and all like just these uber successful people in this beautiful climate controlled office. And as Dave Rubenstein likes to say, he doesn't know many happy rich people. And many of them are tortured souls. And you don't know what kind of mood they're going to be in, despite the fact that they have private jets and, and everyone caters to their wishes. And I'd say, how is that possible? How is that possible? And it's because Sala chose to be happy. And that really impacted me. And because it is a choice. And that doesn't mean you're happy all the time. We all have ups and downs and different struggles in life. But if you are about to get in a climate controlled office and it's really hot outside, like almost everyone will, the first thing they do when they get in the elevator is complain to someone. Well, it's really hot out. Like, why don't you just shut up? <laughs> like, just focus on the fact that you're alive and how blessed you are and the opportunities you have and that you have health care. But and I'm sure you've seen studies on this is that if you win the lottery or you get a raise or a promotion, people adjust to the new circumstance very quickly. And so it raises the baseline. And what I try to do, I actually have a happiness formula. It's called H equals A over E. Happiness equals actual over expected. And if you can manage the E, the denominator, you'll almost always be happy. And that doesn't mean having low standards or expectations. It just means being reasonable and that you know, if you win the lottery, like don't go berserk with spending, just be modest. And you're like, always, you'll always be happy. It's pretty incredible. Well, listen, I, I grew up in a blue collar neighborhood. I think my dad's last pay was about $35,000 when he retired in the year 2000. And of course, you know, it took uh, twenty-five or $30,000 at that time to get through a place like Tufts or Harvard Law School. So, you know, I was uh, hustling to make that happen. He did give me a little bit of money, God bless him. But you learn from that and you learn about managing your expectations. My dad used to have a great line. If you can't afford the price of the ticket, don't go to the movies. And uh, he taught us how to live below our means, you know, and try to be watchful of our money, but also like that, you know, money certainly is important. I'm not saying it isn't. It's a great tool, particularly if you need healthcare or access to things or some levels of freedom. But it's also a shackle if you start the comparison game. You start comparing yourselves to others. And this is a big mental health crisis that's happening now for our younger people, older people too. Uh, but in social media, they're looking at people's filtered lives, Chris, and they don't know themselves. They're living an unfiltered life, but they see this person filtered up and they're like, well, what am I missing? And they start to grow anxious and they get socially insecure. Uh, and it causes levels of depression. So the book is very meaningful to me. Also, my, my father-in-law, who is also now deceased, was a parking attendant. Didn't make much money, 40 years in the Kenny parking system. And I'm going to tell you right now, Christopher Ullman, he was a role model for me. I always tell my wife that because he got it. He got the joke about life. He got the simplicity of it. He also got the temporary nature of it. So he wasn't going to drive himself crazy in that comparative game. He was going to try to find some love and some happiness with his family and his children. And I think the lessons you are telling in this book are extraordinary. I want to I want to go to one last thing before I get to the end of this podcast, but this was something that really struck me. Humility. Conway and Rubenstein in particular are incredibly successful. You mentioned in the book that there's only probably a thousand or so billionaires. These guys are self-made billionaires, but they're remarkably and in incredibly humble. Tell me about that and tell me how you think they got that way. And isn't that a superpower for them in many ways, Chris? I love the way you phrase that, Anthony, is that the superpower. Anyone who knows David and Bill knows that they are warm, 
genuine, humble people. And they got that way, I believe, because they're self-made. You know, David grew up very, you know, kind of blue collarish. Uh, his father was a postman. His mother was a, a homemaker and worked in a dress shop. And he had to earn his way. He had to earn his scholarships to Duke and to Chicago Law. You know, Bill, Bill's family had a little more money, but not much more. But they earned it. So earned success helped them realize what's important. And nothing was handed to them. Now, interestingly, so Bill is a, a very serious Catholic. So his generosity is very derived from his faith. David is Jewish, but not particularly practicing. His generosity is really derives from his kind of belief in the role he plays in the community. And they're not, it's not that different from Bill, but it's slightly different motivations. So they are just remarkably generous. And I mean, I, I would not work for a boss who just had billions and, and bought fancy paintings and stuck them in his office. Like yeah, Bill would roam the halls of Carlisle giving out gift cards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bill would roam the halls of Carlisle giving out $5 and $10 gift cards to Dunkin' Donuts to people and said, I will give you a stack of these if you give them to homeless people in the street. And I still carry them around with me. And it's been years since I worked there. And mm-hmm. so it's incredibly inspiring. And uh, to, to be with people, it's like Bill did a deal, I don't know, around two years ago, probably made a couple hundred million and net, that's net after taxes. And I said, Bill, congratulations. And he said, thanks. Now I have to figure out how to give it away effectively. Like That's his response. It's not, can I buy a bigger yacht? It's well, that's his, that's, his that, that, that's his gift, you know, and I share his faith. And uh, uh, Bill actually helped me, uh, you know, he had gone through an early part of his life, a divorce. I know his second wife and him are very happily married for many, you know, multiple decades. But I went through a divorce. I got married very young. Uh, the, the woman I married is a great mom. And uh, there's no bad blood or anything like that. But it's it's it was a very stressful period of time in my life. And he was incredibly kind to me and gave me some really good advice. Now, you may or may not know this because you're the matzah side of Matzapequa, and I would be the pizza side. <laughs> but as a Catholic, if you're divorced, you can't accept communion. Um, you're not allowed to technically. Okay. And so it was really a conversation with Bill and I about how to keep your Catholicism and keep your faith, even if some of the things that have happened in your life are not directly tied to the church's doctrine. And so I just have just this enormous amount of respect for him and David, but I thought that was something cool. Um, there are, are uh, my authors, I ask my authors at the end of each of my podcasts, I bring up five words. I usually take them from the book, your book, Four Billionaires and a Parking Attendant. What a great title uh, and just a great inspirational read, by the way. So I'm going to read you these five words, Chris, and then you give me your reaction. You give me a word, a sentence, a thought. Uh, let's start with the word purpose. Make the most of every day because you don't know when the last day is going to be here. Okay. Yeah. So it's an acceptance of the temporary nature of life. And so live your life with a lot of passion and purpose. Let's go to the word enough. Try to do your best and be happy with that because comparing yourself to another person is not going to make you happy. Yeah. The comparison game leads to a path of envy and resentment and bitterness. I don't, I don't, I don't recommend it for people. It's almost a test for all of us here on earth to just focus on our virtue and our things that we should be grateful for, not looking over our shoulder or ahead of us or to the left or the right. So well said. Lessons, lessons, the word lessons. Forever student, got to keep learning, 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 open-mindedness, suppress the ego, 
and absorb all the greatness around you. Okay. That's a really good one. Very, very, very practical too, right? And I believe in that. You have to keep that fire of intellectual curiosity always burning with you. Two last ones. Let's go to spirit. We see this in all people, but particularly Sal, the parking attendant. What do you mean by spirit? Spirit is about being grateful. Gratitude will redound to a, a, a joyous spirit, meaning how you present yourself to the people around you. Are you a dour person or are you filled with gratitude and love of life? How great is that, right? And ultimately, it doesn't matter if you're making $35,000 a year, $35 million a year. You can have that, particularly in America, right? I mean, what the hell are you going to do with the money anyway? You're going to go to Dunkin' Donuts or Starbucks. You're going to have a... uh, yeah, what are you going to do with the money? I mean, I, I, these people go crazy over money. I, and, and nobody cares, by the way. If you're trying to show off your money, nobody cares. It's just a play in your own brain, your own ego. You know what I mean? Nobody mm-hmm. cares. Totally. They care about themselves, Chris. They don't give anything about you or me. Okay, last one. Okay, life. The greatest gift of all. Why? It comes from the creator. And when you have life, you have opportunity and you have obligation. You have gifts, and if you if you waste them, then the creator is not happy. God, I tell my children all the time: God gave you gifts. You you're duty bound to make the most of them and touch the people around you, which is actually what my you mentioned the whistling, which is what my whistling book was about. Is that everyone has a simple gift in life? Mine happens to be whistling, but you have gifts, and you share them with people around you. I'm not worried about changing the world. I'm worried about Anthony Scaramucci at this moment. That's all I'm caring about. And if you if you have that life and you have those gifts, you must develop them and share them. So it's it's really well said. Well, you know, I uh, I'm a little jealous of John Stork that he's spent more time with you, Chris Allman, <laughs> than me. Uh, but this last uh, several minutes has been very well spent by me. The title of the book is Four Billionaires and a Parking Attendant. It's by Christopher Ullman. I recommend it to everybody. Uh, it's a quick read. I was a little disappointed when I finished it, actually. I wanted wanted more. I thought you did a great job of that, too. The best books and the best public speakers, they, they leave you with something. You want more coming out of that tank. And I think you did that here as well. Uh, so I, I wish you great success with the book. And I look forward to seeing you again soon, I hope. Thank you for joining us today on Open Book. Thank you, Anthony. I'm, I'm really pleased and grateful for this opportunity. Well, there were so many great lessons in this short book, Four Billionaires and a Parking Attendant. Uh, I encourage everybody to go out and buy the book. It's uproariously funny. We also learn a lot about Chris himself. He's a humble man. He's anchored to certain truths about life. Uh, and what are some of those central truths for me? It's appreciation, a love for life, uh, despite its vagaries and some of the uncertainty, the fact that we could be here today. And if you're listening to this podcast, you're lucky because you have access to the internet. You have access probably to a smartphone. Uh, so that means that you probably have access to some good food. Or if you're in America, you have access to some pretty crappy food, but it tastes great because it's so processed. So, so one or the other, you should be enjoying yourself today. And I think that's a big message of this book. I also want to give a big shout out to James Philip Ball, who is my father-in-law, Deirdre's dad. Uh, He died in 2014, uh, right after my son Nick was born, and he was a parking attendant. He spent 40 
plus years in the Kinney parking system in Manhattan. And he was a wonderful man. He had such great perspective. And I can tell you for me, he was a role model because he understood what was important about life. And I think what you find in four billionaires and a parking attendant is Chris has found an assortment of people, rich and poor, that get that life is to be enjoyed, uh, but above all else, life is to be appreciated. And so uh, that's the the unstinting thought that I get from this book. And I encourage you to go out there and read it. And what a wonderful conversation it was today with Chris. Ma. Why? You ready for the podcast or no? You ready? Yeah, of course. Go ahead. All right. All right. So I had on, today I had on my show a guy named Christopher Ullman. He wrote a book called Four Billionaires and a Parking Attendant. You know, one of the things about the book, it made me think of uh, Deirdre's dad, Jim, who was a parking attendant. You remember him, right? Yeah, of course. Did you like him? Very nice man. Yeah. What did you like about him? Uh, He was easy breezy. He reminded, I had a... I had two brothers. One was edgy. I didn't take any ball. And the other one used to look at it like it wasn't, it was okay if people were a little wacky because he, he would just flow with it much easier. And right. I think Jim Ball reminded me of him. Yeah. So he was an easygoing guy, but he also had he a- was easy breezy. But yes. a nice disposition, right? Yeah. It reminded me of Uncle Tony, definitely. Okay. But you could be rich and humble, right? Absolutely. Right. But you could also be rich and arrogant, right? I don't know. Some people are, uh, my father had money, as as you don't realize, when we were young. He bought everyone a house of his family except for one sister. And he was very giving to his family. And then when he needed help because he developed Parkinson's very badly, they told me to put him in a home and said I took care of him. Mm-hmm. And I think that right. that was a mean right. thing. But to so do. that can the happen. Richard Ford have, have to reciprocate when they're helped by someone very wealthy because they don't have to help them, and then you know they have All to. Right, but respond. ma, that's they but that's human. Respond. Okay, but Ma, that's human nature, though, isn't it, Ma? You sometimes you go to help somebody and they're not really grateful for it. No. Uh, well, you know, my mother's people are less selfish than my father's people. I had an uncle who was very, very giving. His name was Salvatore Castillo, and he was very, very loving and very, very giving. And I had another uncle named Dominic, who was a real bitch. He wouldn't give you two cents, and he was very, very wealthy. Mm-hmm. So, and my uncle Sal was not as wealthy as him, but he would give you his last dollar if mm-hmm. he needed it. So mm-hmm. there's a difference of the people's personality. Mm-hmm. And I think that you have a lot of my mother in you because you do try to help people. Mm-hmm. And you, you're very well, fair with the people that work for you. Well, what is the point though, right? And I think this was the author today. The point was appreciate what you have and try to help the people around you. Don't you think that those are the happiest people that are able to do that? Absolutely. Don't you think that Sal was more happy than Dominic? You have to go to the golden gate. I'm a little bit religious. And I believe that if you, I had a mother who was an immigrant who was very with it. And she used to tell me as a child, she died fairly young. And she used to say to me, do good and forget it and do bad and remember it. Because someday the world will turn and then you have to pay. Yeah, and she I, was I big really on that. that philosophy, and I try not to hurt people. Yeah, no, I remember that. And that was a big issue in the book. You know, if, if there was uh, one lesson from that book, it was to be grateful, but also act with great kindness. Do you think that that's important, Ma? Absolutely. But I don't, I, I don't think that you should be 
too giving because I had a father who used to say that sometimes if you're too kind, it's a sign of weakness. So you right. have to be in the middle of the road. You got to know what you're doing. Yeah. Too good is no good, right? That's what he used to say. Well, right? he used to say that if you're too good, it's a, it's a sign of weakness. Mm-hmm. Because some people just don't get it. You know, some mm-hmm. people get it and some people don't get it. Mm-hmm. All right, Ma. What else, Ma? What else you want to say? You got anything else you want to say? No, I love you very much, Kukula. I am Anthony Scaramucci, and that was Open Book. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, tell your friends and make sure you hit follow or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. While you're there, please leave us a rating or review. If you want to connect with me or chat more about the discussions, it's at Scaramucci on Twitter or Instagram. You can also text me at plus one nine one seven nine oh nine two nine nine six. I'd love to hear from you. I'll see you back here next week.